Jose, can you see? I'm just kidding. Happy birthday, America. Happy belated birthday, America. America, coming to you from Aspen, Colorado. Happy 4th. Actually, you're listening to this on the 5th, but you know what I mean. Been a fun week. Started the, uh, the Stages podcast. A daily recap show of this year's Tour de France. Myself and my good friend J.B. Hager in the Airstream studio right here in the hood. It's been fun to watch, watch the race. Watch the race, uh, you know, get up early, watch everything, watch, try to predict what's happening, seeing if it comes true or not, and just watching the dynamic. It's been years since I've paid this much attention to the tour, and, and uh, I'm loving it. And if you're listening to it, thank you for tuning in. Much appreciate it. If you're trying to figure out where to find it, whether you want to find it on iTunes or Google Play or SoundCloud, go to stagespodcast.com, stagespodcast.com. That's where all the information is, so you can uh, know where to go. For the fourth, I had uh, uh, I was asked by a local local charity here called the Buddy Program. They they partner with a run every Fourth of July every morning called the Boogies Five Miler, and uh, they asked me to be the lead bike. So I was the lead uh, vehicle for the run, which was super cool. I actually ran the race last year and got fourth or fifth, I think. But uh, it's kind of a traditional, not kind of, it's a traditional fun kickoff to the 4th of July here in, in our small little town before people head on over to, uh, to downtown uh, for the parade, which is sort of this classic Americana parade, you know, uh, Hot Rods, Harleys, uh, my, my, both of my kids are in the parade, Max rides his dirt bike with the Dirt Bike Club, Olivia sits on the art museum float. Um, if you're ever in the area or in these parts, come on over on the 4th at 11 a.m. and watch the parade. It's just, it's like I said, it's as American as American gets. Did I say that right? It's as American as America gets. There you go, that's better. Another thing I did this week, which you guys will uh, hear about pretty soon, um, is we are, again, we're going to do the Aspen 50 again, which last year we did on my birthday, September 18th. This year we're doing it a day earlier, September 17th here in Aspen. 50 tough miles. I went and uh, reconned and, and mapped and profiled the course last week. It's a tough one, 50 miles. There's a mix of pavement, but there's an awful lot of single track. I got it at about 6,700 vert, um, only going to be 200 spots. So tickets are going to go on. Tickets. <laughs> uh, yeah, we'll sell you a ticket. Uh, tickets to come suffer are going on sale next week, so stay tuned for that. That is a We Do production. Who does? We do. And on to my guest this week, FK Day. FK I've known for a long time. FK was one of the co-founder, or one of the founders of, of SRAM Corp. And SRAM, for you cycling fans, you'll know they make components and wheels and suspension. And, you know, they started super small. And we, we, FK and I get into how they started. They were the first company to ever make a handlebar shifting. Now we sort of take for granted the fact that most of our bikes uh, have shifting on the levers, and uh, but they were the first to sort of make that up. And the, back in the day, it was called grip shift. And so I actually rode grip shift in the late '80s. Yes, I'm that old. Um, so, but but FK is not known, um, and and nor does he, I think nor does he want to be known for for being one of the founders of SRAM. 
And I think the most important thing, and he and I agree would agree on this, the most important thing he's ever done is founded an organization called World Bicycle Relief. And World Bicycle Relief is, is a, uh, an organization I've been around and known for a long time. They do tremendous work. Um, they've just launched their new campaign, Wheels in the Field. Zambia, the next generation. World Bicycle Relief started its first education program in Zambia in 2009. And to date, supporters have helped more than 50,000 Zambian students take ownerships of the bicycles that they need to achieve their dreams. World Bicycle Relief's goal this July is to fund 3,200 more bicycles for Zambian students. Did you know that July, the bicycle is this July, right now, is the bicycle is celebrating its 200th birthday? Will you help? Will you help Bicycle Relief? I know I am. We're about to open an online store for the Stages podcast, the Tour de France podcast I just talked about. 10% of all proceeds from that store are going to World Bicycle Relief. They have a group of super generous donors that are matching all of our gifts one-to-one. So all you need to do is go to worldbicyclerelief.org, sign the pledge, and if you got a spare dollar laying around, hand it their way. They do great work, very efficient organization, and, and, and as you'll hear from FK, um, his passion is, uh, is almost intoxicating. So uh, join us, join them, join Stages, join us all in helping students in Zambia. Let's get them, let's, let's, let's uh, give them the opportunity to throw the leg over a bicycle. A lot of you know what that's like, I know what that's like. Let's share that. Enjoy. Have a great fourth. Hope you had a great fourth. And uh, happy birthday, bicycle. Happy 200. FK Day, thanks for being here. It's great to be here, Lance. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. What is FK? What does it stand for? Yeah. I, you know, it stands for Frederick. I hope you know. Oh, yeah, I do. It stands for Frederick King. My parents called me FK since I was born, named after a grandfather. Hmm. And your brother is Stan Ray. Right, named after our father. So a lot of our naming is like in honor of the ancestors, it seems. Yeah. Well, before we get to World Bicycle Relief, because I think that's obviously the most interesting conversation that we can have, I'd, I'd feel remiss if I didn't talk about SRAM and didn't talk about my history, I think, and I should probably disclose that I've had a long history with SRAM and was part of the company for um, quite a few years. But my first like experience with was it? I don't even know if it was called SRAM. Was with Grip Shift, and this was I was a young kid, and I don't know if it was you or your brother or a group of y'all. You were, you guys were down at the Hotter Than Hell Hundred in Wichita Falls, Texas. And it was also, it was a ride, like a public ride, but there was also a race part. You were trying to get all these guys to shift over to the script shift. Oh my God, I remember that. And I, and I did it. I was like, this totally makes sense. Oh, that is, that is hilarious. Well, I, I do remember that ride, and yep. it, it is appropriately called Hotter Than Hell. That's right. And it's definitely one of the, one of the funner rides. But I, remember, I remember being at that and trying to convince people to... Uh, consider shifting at the end of their handlebars as opposed to reaching to the down tube at that point. Right. Because that's the only way you could shift back then. And there was a lot of, oh, I don't think that's a good idea. But there was a, a lot of people, or I, I would say a small, really concerted group of people that said, just like what you said, that makes a ton of sense. We hadn't thought of that before. Mm-hmm. 
And that slowly began the slowly began turning the motor. Yep. And they had a criterion. And so for the the fan the listener who's not a cycling fan and never raced, I mean a criterion is a, typically a tight circuit, four corners, you know, maybe a mile long. So to me, you know, that's when I switched over because I thought, well, you know, if you're trying to get through the corners and trying to, you know, maybe have to be in you know, some sort of a sprint, I mean, it just makes sense to have them near your hands. Yeah. And, a, and they were indexed. Yep. Right. They are right at the And was the down tube, I should know all this, I should remember, this is in the late 80s, this is in 80, 89, and I've asked my mom to find old pictures, because my, my grip shift were neon yellow. Nice. Which is now cool again. Yep. You were always a fashion, fashion statement. Right. Well, I don't know about that, but... But the down tube shifter was also indexed. They were just beginning. Just beginning. Okay, yeah. so you guys could, it matched up with a Shimano or a Campy. Yeah, Cam Campy, I, I don't think it figured out index shifting very much at mm. that time. But we were we were able to sort of index the Campy, but Shimano's Shimano's equipment was much easier uh, much easier to index. But did you hear how Stan came up with the idea for grip shift? No. So um, Stan is your brother, Stan Day. Yep. Good point. Uh, so Stan and I were living together in Chicago, thinking about, you know, going to business together or doing stuff. And he was a weekend triathlete, and I was a weekend mountain biker. And he would come back for, from training on the streets of Chicago, and he would come back and go, FK, I am just going to die out here, reach into the down tube to shift my gears while training. I've got to figure out how to put shifting on the end of the handlebars. So it was that genesis of being threatened to be killed by a taxi cab in the, mm -hmm. center, in the city of Chicago that really got us going on it. And he worked closely with a, um, with a close friend and brilliant engineer and came up with the internal mechanism of the grip shift that then allowed us to put index shifting on the end of the handlebar. And that hmm. began the whole saga. And then you also had them for, since you were the mountain biker, then you also had them for the, for the mountain bike. Yep. Which when, was just on the inside, you know, sort of the interior part of the grip. Right. Kind of like a motorcycle. Still to this program. day. Yeah. Yeah. So, I was riding with somebody the other day. They had grip shift on their mountain bike. I thought it's been a while since I saw that. They're, they're, they've evolved. They're pretty pretty darn sweet, the grip shift for mountain yeah. bikes. Yeah. They're really good. But it was funny because Stan, Stan came from, uh, he wrote a big business plan for us when we came up with the first grip shift. And it called for selling 100,000 units our first year, 200,000 our second year, and we'd sell the company our third year and go live on a beach somewhere. And we ended up selling about 850 grip shift our first year because people just weren't, they, they didn't like to see it on the end of their hand. So 99,150 shy. Just a little shy. <laughs> we had some explaining to do. <laughs> you didn't build 100,000, I hope. No, 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 no. Okay. No. We, would, we would build them at night and try to sell them during the day. So there wasn't much inventory. Yeah. But it was, um, but it was an interesting start. But really, that, that type of, um, you know, disconnect from the end user taught us so much about reconnecting with the end user because yeah. we had chosen not to show anyone the first product so we began you know when people said they didn't like what we had put together uh, we very quickly evolved and developed uh, shifters for triathlete bikes shifters for mountain bikes and you know then began to grow yeah no i mean at that time you had tr uh, well that was exactly the time when the the what we consider now an aero bar right it was first a scott barb that mike pig rode and all the triathletes rode i mean the grip shift was absolutely perfect for that bar I mean, the, the the triathlete never had to leave the aero position 
Yeah, and you know, I wish we'd thought about that at the beginning. Maybe that would have been the first market we would have gone into. But we didn't yeah. think about that until triathletes began drilling right. out their own handlebars yeah. and installing it themselves. Yeah. And what else did SRAM make at that before that? That that was really the our very first product, okay. the grip shift. We we tried a couple of uh, things that we called quick and easy, and nothing is ever quick and easy. But um, like a, a swim buoy, we tried. Uh, but that didn't amount to anything, but it was really shifters. And we ended up, uh, by 95, we were selling about 7 million sets of shifters per year and doing about uh, 65, $70 million in revenue just in shifters. Hmm. So that was a, a good market, but it was at that point that we decided, right. you know, we can either sell out or go all in and develop the rest of the, the rest of the, of the, the grupo. Yeah. And for the, the fan at home, the Grupo is the whole thing. It's the derailers, it's the cranks, it's the brakes, it's, you know, the, well, it's, it, 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 it's, the, it's everything you see on the bike besides the frame. Um, that's fascinating. So, so you, you, so you were, you know, way short of the hundred thousand and now the next thing you know, you're selling millions of these things and that's what drove the growth of the business. Right. Right. Because Yeah. And then came acquisitions, came Zip, came Saks, came, uh, I think you bought a chain manufacturer in Portugal. Yeah, that came with Saks, then yeah. RockShox. RockShox. Avid, Truvative, yep. Zip, Quark. Hmm. So we were able to um, develop organically, but then fill in with uh, technologies. Yeah, but didn't you feel, you must have felt like you were just a minute from just being bust. Oh my God. I, it wasn't until probably 10, 15 years ago that, you know, we, we really thought that we were onto something. You know, Isn't that such a lesson for people? Cause for, you know, I'm not, I don't consider myself an entrepreneur, but I mean, so many people just, well, they either think that they're automatically going to make it or, you know, they just sort of one and done and they give up. Yeah. Like people don't hang in there. I don't think. I was talking to someone the other day and they, they said, what, what, uh, you know, what drove you? Was it, was it um, the possibility of success or the fear of failure? And I go, I don't think you can choose either one because the possibility of success is what gives you the vision that drives you forward. And it's the fear of failure that makes you, you know, get up again and again right. when you get knocked down to keep going after that goal. Right. And annual revenues at SRAM now? Uh, we're, um, we're a bit over 650 million. That's just insane. <laughs> you I, guys... These dudes stumbling around Wichita Falls, Texas, just begging people to put on neon handlebars, you know, shifters at the end of their handlebars. And most people, except my dumbass, was going, no way. And now, you know, two thirds of a billion in annual revenue. And I, I'm, that's America. There you go. And I, I think that uh, probably Stan and me and some of our other uh, colleagues that we started the company with have the distinct, uh, um, I guess, uh, pride to be able to say we've been probably been kicked out of more dealers than most any other human being mm. right back at the beginning when we thought we were selling the, the or showing them the most beautiful product in the world but actually it was only a product that the mother could love right and are you upset that because SRAM is S-R-A-M and that stands for um, Scotty Scott, Ray, Ray and Sam and Sam right am but I upset? There's no F or a K in there. <laughs> How upset are you? you this know, is the place to tell everybody. Just 
Well, you know what, Lance? The um, the the two of us that weren't included in that, Mike Mercury and uh, and myself, and he and I were probably working our asses off that day. And uh, Stan and and Sam and Scotty were probably sitting with their the, feet up the on bar. the table. They were at the bar, exactly. So no, NFK doesn't quite fit in anywhere there. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm I'm. It's been cool to watch, and and it's been for me. It's been cool to see, you know, because I first started riding SRAM you know, the whole group oh, back in 2008, 2009. And I was like, okay, uh, this, this needs, you know, this just needs a little bit of work. And it's cool to see now where the new ETAP, the new red ETAP has gotten to the feel of the brakes, the, you know, the, the shifting as precise as it is. And, and I think, you know, because it's a different shift than the Shimano DI2, right? Than the Shimano electric shift, which is, you know, well, I don't want to bore the listener with technical cycling stuff, but it's so instinctive, the, the red E-tap, right? The, the right lever shifts the, the rear derailleur down, the left lever shifts it up. Yep. I thought, you know, I'm going to be missing shifts for a month. And I just, it, it, it just, as soon as I got on, it was like, it was like total instinct. That's really cool. Yeah. That's great to hear. And the, and the quality of the braking has really come up. Yep. Which is, you know, it turns out it's a pretty important thing. Oh, so I hear but we're 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 learning a lot on uh, uh, on all of those fronts, and what's yeah. what's really neat is the um, to have such uh, usage by high performance athletes, but the high performance athletes that are able to talk technically and explain what they like and don't like is that's invaluable. That is the the roots of product development. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's take it all the way the other way. Let's take it to the because we talked about this before we went live. You know, we were talking about at the top of the of the um, of that spectrum you have guys trying to win the tour de france and them giving feedback to your engineers and to and to you guys you can make things lighter and better and and more efficient and then but at the very other end of the spectrum we have really the reason we're here to talk today is the world bicycle relief and the bike the buffalo bike that you guys build and give away to people in the neediest parts of the world yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's it's interesting. It's been it's it, we're in our eleventh year, and we've delivered over three hundred and fifty thousand bikes. I read that stat. You know, I was reading up, I, and I read three hundred fifty thousand bikes, and i i had to I had to kind of rub my eyes and go, wait a minute, did I just read that? Three hundred fifty thousand bikes given away around the world. Yeah, we'll we'll probably do about sixty five thousand just this year. Hmm. So it's um. And, you know, we're not even touching the, the depth of the need, but it's our hope that as we continue to um, run programs of excellence and measure the impact of the bikes, we'll be able to teach other people how to do this. And then we'll really start to create a, a revolution. And most of the programs or most of these bikes, and, and I could be totally wrong here because I know I'm in a, on, on y'all's website, worldbicyclerelief.org, there's actually a a map a globe so you can see where you guys focus so i know that it's not just africa there's stuff in south america there's stuff in southeast asia there's stuff in india but is the bulk of the bikes that are given away in africa yeah i would say the um we definitely pilot our primary programs in africa and measure them and publish them but i would say at 85 maybe over 90 percent of the bikes that uh, we do are in africa right now hmm. and we have assembly facilities in zambia zimbabwe malawi Angola, <laughs> non-manufacturer. They assemble them there, right. put them together. Yep, yep. So we'll 
we'll bring the bikes in. There'll be a container of 770-ish bikes completely disassembled. Like, here's your, you know, 1 million spokes, and here's your 1 million ball bearings. And right. um, we set up the assembly facilities to put them all together. And who gets the bikes? Are we, because, you know, I should know these, but I don't, I want you to tell me or tell the listener. But, it, I mean, are we talking kids get the bikes? Are we talking teachers? Are we talking doctors? Are we talking bakers? No, this is really cool because the, um, you know, we really run programs in the areas of healthcare, education, and economic development. And each of those categories have very specific programs attached to them. So we simply don't walk down the road and identify a school and we see kids walking, give them a bike. What we do is we go to specific schools usually in the rural areas where they have students that are living, you know, five, 10, 15 kilometers away and they have to walk to school. Each Come day. on. And we'll I can tell you what my kids would do. <laughs> Look for the ride from Papa. Huh? Yeah. Or not. Or they wouldn't walk that far. I know that. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know any too many American kids that would hoof it like that. Right. Well, these, you know, they're these kids, oftentimes education is the only way, only way out of poverty. Right. And so they, they really fight for it. But oftentimes, um, when kids are faced with that type of walk, they oftentimes have to just drop out of school and they, they give up. So we'll work closely with the schools and the teachers and the parents and the students to identify the, the students in greatest need. Mm. And then we'll go into the school and provide, you know, 100, 200 bikes. And sometimes these schools are 600 to 1,000 students. Wow. But they will go through the selection process will deliver the bikes and the students will be on a study to own program where if they stay in school and they they continue to attend then they will own the bike after several years and that has been wildly successful and it's capturing the atten attention of some of the you know the big relief organizations and governments uh, around the world because it's hard to get that type of uh, educational impact so we have raw data that talks about attendance is up, performance right. is up. I saw that. That's on your website. Right? Yeah. And in the roads that they ride on, I mean, are, are, I mean, we're talking dirt roads, obviously. Yeah. Mostly, mostly dirt roads, dirt paths. Uh, bad. I mean, bad. rough. Bad. Yeah. Yeah. And it just tears bikes apart. So it's, it was funny as, you know, as we talk about all the product development that goes into the putting a bike under you and the Tour de France. Well, it's the same product development process that we go through to put a bike into the hands of a schoolgirl, for example, where you've got to really get into the understanding of the schoolgirl's needs, uh, how they use the bike, what is the environment, what is the expected level of spare parts or maintenance and repair, and then you design the bike to fit that girl and that environment. Right. And that's how we came up with the Buffalo bike. And obviously, and the, the, the name of the bike is the Buffalo bike, but... So obviously you want as few parts slash things that can go wrong as possible. Yeah, exactly. And we have to, we have to make it uh, reliable, durable, you know, high carrying capacity, easy to repair and backward compatible with spare parts so that they're not stuck with an, an unusual part out in the field and they can't fix their bike. Mm -hmm. So, and then we have to make it inexpensive. Inexpensive allows us to deliver more bikes, put them in the hands of schoolgirls. And it allows them, you know, many entrepreneurs to go ahead and buy their own bike. Yeah. Because the bikes cost you about 150 bucks to make? Yeah. Well, to deliver into the field, roughly. Right. Well, that's that's got to be a big chunk of it. I mean, getting getting it all there, getting it assembled. 
Yeah. And they weigh 50 pounds. 50 pounds of love, Lance. 50 pounds of love. Yeah. <laughs> you think, yeah, I'm, I'm, I've, I've got this, I think I've talked about this on here, but I've got this new, I don't ride them, but I'm, and I was such a detractor of e-bikes, so, but now I'm like so on the e-bike thing. Like I, I just, I kind of love the idea of e-bikes. Like at some point that would be great for a little, I don't know, they, maybe they don't have power over there, but a little pedal assist. Yeah, yeah. If you could keep them together, it might be. Yeah. You know, power them up from the sun, might be. And when, and, and when people, I mean, I'm assuming people just send you $150, or that's an ex- example. They could say, I want to buy a bike, or I want to buy 10 bikes. Right. Or maybe here's just a general donation, and you can use it however you please. Um. But let's just say, for example, Sally May in um, Kansas City said, I want to buy a bike. Yep. Can she know who got the bike? She can, we can roughly, for a single donation of 150 bucks, it's a little bit hard to track. The cost of tracking that $150 mm-hmm. would chew up most of that $150. But for example, if we were running a campaign, and we run multiple campaigns throughout the year, for example, saying, you know, we're, we're aiming to put 5,000 bikes into the hands of schoolgirls in Malawi, and, you know, we need to raise this amount of money. Then you'll know that that amount of money will go to schoolgirls in that particular part of Malawi. So we're able to track it more on a macro level, but to be able to track it to the individual, you know, we see that done a lot with um, sponsoring individual kids. Sure. And you do the math on what it costs to do to track one kid and provide communication back and suddenly you're using up 50% of the donation just to stay attached. Yeah. yeah. I see I see both sides. I mean, you don't want an inefficient nonprofit. Right. I mean, that that's not a good thing. Um, but on the flip side, it would be so cool if Sally May could say, "Oh my god, you know, uh, Jacob got this bike and here's a picture and but I'm totally with you. Totally yeah. with you. It makes it makes it real makes it tangible and and you're over there all the time yeah quite i lived there for uh for the last six months you lived there yeah where with uh with my family in uh kisumu western kenya oh my god it was fantastic (laughs) talk about (laughs) seriously yeah we we moved there in uh the end of september of uh of last year and just moved back the uh the beginning of may this year Wow. And you know, there's how old some, are your kids? Uh, I just have a son. He was 10 years old. He went to a, to he a, must be, was he thinking what dad, what's up? Well, he, he said, you know, Papa, you can go, but I'm not going to go. Well, I'm sure he said that. Yeah. But he, he eventually came along and, uh, you know, I think there are parts that he just loved and parts that he, he just didn't like at all, but it was a great, ex- great experience. He particularly had been to Africa, you know, a dozen times before. So it wasn't wasn't totally new, but mm. to to be out in the field for a long period of time gave my wife Leah a chance to uh, work on some fantastic photographic stories. Gave me the ability to spend more time on the field, improving the bike, improving the programs, and you know, gave our son a, the experience of his life. So he went to like a, there was an American school or some kind of private school. It was a British school, British kind school. of taught the way they used to teach uh, 150 years ago, using a lot of, you know, shame and stuff like that. He, he eventually fired the school. 
went in and ripped Yeah, I'm, I'm a 10-year-old. I'm walking in, and all you people, you're a sweet guy, so I won't say what I usually say on this podcast, but all you people are fired. And to the regular listener, you know what I would have said instead of people. <laughs> it, was, it was funny. One day, he just, he just declared, you know what? I'm just not going to go to school anymore. And I go, Lincoln, if you're not going to go to school, I think you need to go down and tell the headmaster why. He walked down and read the headmaster of the Five Point Riot Act. I'm like, well, that was that was pretty cool. And then we then we had to figure out some homeschooling and stuff like that. But uh, it was good. And would you live in? I mean, I don't, I've never been there. Like, did you live in like a regular house? You weren't living in like a hut or one of these rural. The uh, Kasum was kind of a beat up industrial town yeah. on the banks of Lake Victoria. Um, we lived in a, a cute little house with windows that we never shut. They weren't shut from September until, you know, until the day we left. So, you know, the temperature was 65 to 80 every day and sunny in the dry season. It's like L.A. It's quite beautiful. But there were snakes. There were snakes. You know, they had green mambas and black mambas and cobras. And That's what I like about Colorado. There's no snakes, uh-huh. at least up here. But the coolest part was um, was getting getting into the field and sure. seeing the impact of the bikes, on, particularly on students, which is right. where our, our primary focus is. I'm glad right you now. said that because I was like, you must have some amazing examples of stuff. I mean, you've seen thousands of these where somebody receives a bike. It could be a, a child or it could be an older person. And, it, and it's just, you know, just something that they never, ever thought that they would have. So and that would stick with me forever, or stick, stick with anybody. Yeah, you 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 can't you can't erase the looks the look in their eyes when they have a sense that they can finish school, and from a standpoint of their likelihood of finishing school was highly unlikely. To I am actually going to finish school, and that's the difference between you know heading down the pathway deeper into poverty versus the possibility of living a life better than their parents. Right. And that is, that is just amazing. You see it, you see it in their eyes. It's, um, it's, you feel it in your heart. I mean, it's easy to say, but you know, we, you know, we know that in these war torn areas where most of the population lives in poverty, it's just easy, whether it's, you know, a genocide in Rwanda, it's easy to, at least I've never been there, and I certainly wasn't there at the time, but you can imagine that it would be easy to convince these people that this is the right thing to do. This, let's, let's just start a genocide. Whereas if you had a lot of educated people um, that had, or at least had been educated, I mean, they're, they're like, wait a minute, we're going to do what? That sounds like a bad idea. Yeah, I, I, I think you put your finger right on it. And when people are, are hungry and impoverished and their kids are starving, you know, they they go to extremes to fix that problem. And the only way out of poverty is, is through education. Right. And all the data talks about if you can educate a girl, the um, amazing things happen to mm. her, her family, her community. She gets married later. She has a smaller family. Her income goes up. The health of her family goes up. The health and welfare of the community goes up. So we really focus in on providing bikes to, to, to girl students. What percentage of these bikes... Um, I mean, let's just say a year later, what percentage of them are still being used? So, you know, they haven't just put them aside or they haven't broken them and can't, and can't fix them. Don't want to fix them. Do you, can you track what percentage of them are staying on the road, so to speak? Yeah. 
You know, a lot of it depends. So, for example, in the education program where we're providing uh, bikes to the students, the school really helps keep the keep the um, the fleet and attention going, even mm-hmm. though the bike's going to end up becoming the the student's bike. And I would say, in a well-run school, we'll have ninety to one hundred percent of the bikes still working mm. because we train we train field mechanics. We put them near the school. We give them access to spare parts. So we try to complete the whole um, ecosystem of what keeps the bike in the field running. Hmm. So that's uh, we've begun doing that in the last um, last handful of years. I'd say the very first bikes we put into the field, we didn't have an understanding that that type of support could dramatically increase the um, the life of the bike in the field. Yeah, sure. I mean, if you imagine, I mean, if even as something as simple as a flat tire, if you've never had a bike. I mean, I can hardly fix a flat tire. So if you never had a bike and your tire is flat, you know, it's, you're just like, okay, well, this doesn't work anymore. Yeah. One of, the, um, one of the things we focus in when we go into a new country, we try to make sure that there is a, um, a culture of cycling. Mm. So we're not, we're not going to, um, to a place that's never, never had that experience. Huh. So there's always, Like Rwanda. Rwanda has a pretty de- decent... Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, but they have the Rwandan cycling team. It's a crazy, this crazy story. It's like total success story. Yeah, I so, love it. Yep. So that that's um, where where we see a culture of cycling. Then it's it's very easy to adopt a um, to adopt a program mm-hmm. where there's no culture of cycling. You know, the kids treat the bikes like toys. There, there's no respect for the bike. There's no interest in repair, and those fall apart and don't make any impact. So we mm-hmm. stay out of those areas. So you're giving you're going to give away sixty five thousand bikes this year. Slight correction on that. So we have uh, we've got a really interesting program that we started uh, two thousand eight. We put so much time into the design of the bike that many organizations came to us and said, "Well, if you can't give us a bike philanthropically, then we want to purchase the bike from you." So we went ahead and uh, started another company. Buffalo Bicycles, which is a wholly owned for-profit company that's owned by World Bicycle Relief. Who makes the Buffalo bike? Uh, who? Okay, so it's... Uh, or who is Buffalo bike? I mean, I know the bike is... The bike that y'all give away is a Buffalo bike. Or it says Buffalo. So we did... We've spent um, many years since uh, we first began doing this program improving the bike. And, you know, all the way from the design to the manufacturing to the delivery to the assembly to training field mechanics and spare parts. And as a result of that, it's become, you know, a very highly sought after bike. So about half of all of the bikes we deliver into the field are purchased by individuals and other not-for-profits and governments Mm -hmm. and um, corporations and then the other half is uh, is delivered philanthropically into our own programs that we measure very carefully and publish the results. Hmm. So that's kind of the magic of the program. My hope is that in five years, if we're doing a million bikes a year, 800,000 of them will be sold for profit, and the profits will go into fund a significant part of the not-for-profit side. To me, that's the magic of the program. It's, it's, uh, it has the possibility of becoming self-funding once we get to scale. Right. Yeah, a million bikes a year, that would be that would be something. And we still wouldn't be making a dent in transportation with just a million. But if we were at a million bikes a year generating tons of data on the impact of simple transportation, we would be igniting 
companies all over the world to do the same thing. Right. And that's where we really get the big change. Right. And who needs World Bicycle Relief the most? Is it Africa? Is that why you're focused? Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I would think that uh, Africa's got that perfect blend. <laughs> perfect blend. Perfect blend of poverty. No. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah that's a, a perfect storm. Yeah, it's got, um, you know, horrible poverty, terrible infrastructure. Um, you know, they suffer from, from hunger, from, uh, you know, uh, HIV and AIDS, malaria, tuberculosis. Yeah. Uh, and they've, they've got, you know, the spirit is there to overcome all of these things, yeah. but there's no, no tools or horsepower there. Yeah. So to be able to provide a bike is just like revolutionizing people at the grassroots level, which is why this is so impactful compared to, you know, sure you could build another deep water seaport or build another airport, but will that ever trickle down to the poorest people in those countries? Not really, but by providing some of the poorest people with a bike and a program like our education program, you really empower them from the bottom up. Right. Do you get people that say, because I've heard people say this, you know, oh, but, 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 why, why wouldn't we give away bikes to American kids? Because there's plenty of poor American kids that would love to have a bike and would love to and need a bike to get to school. Maybe, maybe, maybe you do give bikes to American kids. You know, um, we we try to go where the need is the highest, right? But I, I'm I'm kind of with. I'm that. not. I, yeah, I'm not with. I mean, I'm. I've heard that, but but it's not. I, I think that I think I'm with you on what you're about to say. Well, I, I I would love to run an experiment in um, possibly in in large cities where you have these these food deserts where um, either adults or kids have to spend a lot of money on bus fare to get to school or to get to work or to find healthy food. And I'd be really curious to see what the impact of that would be. But yeah. right now the the priorities on Africa. But I'd be very curious to see if there's a, something we could replicate in the U.S. And in Africa, the healthcare part is is if you're a healthcare provider, if you're a doctor or a nurse or any kind of healer, are they able to get to the people that need them the most? Are or, are we able to get the bikes to them? No, just in general. And and second part of the question is is that part of this? Because just as a survivor, I can imagine. You know, somebody in this rural village has cancer, and they they haven't they, they they can't get to the doctor. The doctor can't get to them. To me, that just it, it seems like it doesn't have to be cancer. It could be HIV AIDS. It could be all these things you just listed. Yeah. But for to to be able to have a doctor come to them yeah. seems it's, it's powerful. It's huge. Our very first program in Africa was focused in on. Um, uh, on coming alongside five large relief organizations in Zambia that were running a, a large-scale HIV and AIDS, malaria, and tuber tuberculosis program. And what these guys had done was train 23,000 volunteer healthcare workers. Mm. And so this is deep in the rural areas, and it's very traditional for uh, in these villages that if someone gets sick, um, a healthcare worker would stop farming, go take care of the sick person. The village would help that person cover his farm. And so these, these NGOs built off of that model. They began to train these healthcare workers. But what they did is they trained them, then put them in the field and said, okay, you go walk. Yeah. Well, 
You right. Know. That's my point. Yeah. And the, you know, Zambia, for instance, is literally the size of Texas with half the people. So now you kind of know how empty that place is. Mm-hmm. And uh, we came alongside them and provided 23,000 bikes. And suddenly we mobilized this army. And, you know, the healthcare quality went up. The number of cases people could, could tend to went up. The retention rate of the volunteers went up. The, the leverage off of the training went up. It was pretty cool. And no one, no one had been doing this right. before. Right. So, and to me, that's, that's a, so logical. I mean, it's not a good, it's not a good problem to have, but it, 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 um, when I thought, when I first heard of World Bicycle Relief, I was like, well, surely that ties in somewhere to my story in a, in a different way, but yeah, in the sense that, you know, you need access to care. Yep. Yep. And in, interestingly, and, in um, on a, uh, on another note, you know, our, our industry, your industry, my industry, is... No, rel- it's, it's your industry. <laughs> it used to be my industry. Well, you're a big part of it. <clears throat> but the, uh, our industry is so small compared to uh, pharmaceuticals and big oil and, yeah. and all these other big industries. But we hold this really interesting technological key. We have the ability to design and put bicycles into people's hands, literally mobilizing or revolutionizing people whose primary mode of transportation was walking but then getting them on a bike just revolutionizes their life. So our industry is small, but our impact is high, and our impact is right at the grassroots of individuals' lives. I forgot to ask you, is it a, is it a chain or is it a belt drive? Uh, it's a chain. It is a chain? Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I would have thought it would have been a belt drive just to for just because chains get dried out and need chain lube and... and yeah. You know, we've... Um, I'm sure you've, you've tried it all. We, we have to run that interesting balance between price, performance, and design. And, you know, belts, belts are just not, uh, they're not within the cost structure right. of, of what we need. And we found that we can get great performance out of our chains. Mm. We have specially designed heavy-duty chains that we use that, that last for a long, long time. Yeah. If, I, if you ever do convince me to go over there, and we're giving away a 1,000 bikes to some school, we have to have a race. They got every single one of those schools. I'm assuming has a soccer field. Oh yeah, so Definitely. just we'll set up a little, you know, four lap race. I like it. I love it. <laughs> I, lo- I would love. I would be so into that. All right, you come. We'll put it all together. All you need to do is put your feet on the ground. I know. I know. Before for the listener, before we start talking, FK was like, "Got to get you over there," and I and I. I'm such a wimp. I was like, you know, my days of, and I met last week with a lady who had done a lot of work in Rwanda and she wanted me, interesting story, I won't name her, but she works a lot with people in Rwanda and she works a lot with these prisoners in San Quentin. And she was talking to me about Rwanda and like, you have to go, you you have to go. And I'm like, no, I'm not going that, I'm not my days of traveling that far are um, are over, but but which is neither here nor there. I, I might be just being too big of a wimp and may end up doing it. But her point was that um, in in a place like Rwanda, where you, you had this terrible genocide, and you had people that killed family members and and raped neighbors and just awful stuff, that at some point the country just said, "Okay, that's enough." And they still remember all that, but they have forgiven a lot of that. And so it, this was this was her version of, of 
uh, people that were that were a woman who was drastically affected by the genocide and a man who had done terrible things sitting together holding hands accepting each other forgiving each other and just you know moving forward she this was the reason we brought this up because of the name of this podcast and just sort of the way i want to live my life um and obviously ties right into you because the bike moves forward yeah yeah it's all there we're going to get to you to africa lance <laughs> and i think you need to bring the family too no i uh, when you said you moved your family I was like, okay, I'm going to tell my five children that we're moving to Africa. We always talk about, like, what if we just did a year away? We, you know, we're like, oh, what about, you know, France or, you know, uh, Australia or uh, Italy? You know, no. My kids, I love my kids to death, but they would never do it. I, I need to meet your son. He's like the most heroic person that I've heard about today. The fact that a 10-year-old, A, went over there and B, fired his school. I love this guy. <laughs> He's pretty cool. We're we're heading back there together in uh, in July. Actually, we're uh, we're going back um, to Kenya and Zambia, and we're hosting uh, Tony Lowe from uh, from Giant. He's the the huh. outgoing uh, CEO of Giant. Wow. Yeah. Huh. And you know, one of the things that I think is really cool about this this effort, speaking of Giant, is that um, the World Bicycle Relief effort. Yes. Yeah. Is that um, you know. All of the leading producers have kind of who compete ferociously against each other um, have kind of locked arms and are all supporting in one way or another the efforts all the way from Trek to Specialized right. to Cannondale to Giant. Uh, to, to, yeah, there's to, nothing like it. I mean, in the in the think about the bike business. I may, I may be just completely remiss, but I can't think of another. Uh, well, I, certainly I can't think of a model like this, like World Bicycle Relief doing this work, but I can't think of any other nonprofit that kind of, you know, galvanizes people. Yeah, it's it's all about the bike. And I think, you know what, too, I think, you know, people can hear that you're a nice guy, but your brother Stan is, y'all are just nice guys. And so whether it's Trek, Specialized Giant, you know, the Chevellos, all these guys. I mean, people, the Day Brothers, like if you say, hey, can you help out? You, you, nobody's going to say no. They say no, to, they, say, they say no to mean people, not to nice people. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, just say yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, before we get going here, let's, uh, I want to talk about sailing. Ah. Because I know you're a big sailor and... And like you sail a lot and you race your sailboat and you travel on your sailboat and yeah um i don't race as much as i'd like to uh stan but... said you once you guys you maybe y'all did it to get you raced from like new york to the keys not um similar to that but here's here's an interesting thing so well whatever that's a long ways it is a long ways yeah so um, as, as I moved to, uh, to Kenya with, uh, with my family, I literally had to put sailing on hold for a year yeah. and put the whole race program on hold. And then Stan raises his hand along with my other brother, Lincoln, and goes, oh, there's no need to put it on hold. You know, we'll just race your boat for you. Sure. So here I keep getting checks, paying for broken equipment yeah, all year bill. round. Those are bills. Those are bills. Yeah, bills, I mean, writing checks. <laughs> and uh, they they 
raised beautifully in um, down in Florida and the Caribbean over the over the winter, and um, its boats moved back to Lake Michigan where they'll race it during the summer. And I won't race it this year. Hmm. So, uh, and and you're spending all this time over there because it just speaks to you that much, or you felt like the organization needed to be tightened up, or it, or what? Because that is a huge commitment. You know, the, the organization is, we've got great depth on the bench and it's doing beautifully. But for me, getting into the field, that's where, that's where I can learn more. Mm -hmm. That's where I can learn more how to work in the product development, more how to, you know, improve the bike, improve our offerings, work on the supply chain. You know, it's hard to do that from Chicago. Like you can't, you can't walk in the shoes of someone uh, in, in Malawi, for example, unless you go to Malawi and walk in their shoes to right. understand their needs. Yeah. That's, I guess that's the equivalent of, I mean, if I let, try to compare it to myself back in the days when I was at Livestrong and we were doing amazing things and that would be the equivalent of just sitting at home or sitting in the office and never going to a hospital and visiting somebody that's been diagnosed or getting treated or you know, God forbid at the end of their life. And, and, you know, that's the thing where when you get there and I wasn't trying to refine anybody's outcome, right. It's just, it's just, it's for, for me and for us at the time. And I guess a little bit for you too, is just that, that inspiration that comes from actually seeing, seeing it real time. Right. Right. It gives you the ability to address their needs by empathizing with what those needs really are. Yeah. And I think that's why, you got such a cool organization. Yeah. Did. Did have. Did. Well. <laughs> oh, all right. It's neither here nor there. All right. Well, founders are founders. You can't no longer be a founder. <laughs> that's no, that's right. It's it's all you know what? You've given you've given away a lot of bikes and you're gonna to continue to give away a lot of bikes and you know, whatever what we did over those fifteen years, like I sleep so good at night, it's like and it's and it's neat to talk about and even think about helping something like this, but but when it, when I think about cancer, I'm like no no part of me is like oh I didn't do enough or I I fell short or God I suck. I mean it, it like I, I I go to bed and I'm like okay I, I'm 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 proud of what I did and so um but you know, you know that that uh, that gene that wants to do that. That that also never dies, right? So you could go take it. I could take it to Africa with you. I could take it to. It doesn't even have to go that far. You can just make. I do it every day. I make a, vid a video for somebody and send right. it out, right. right? And that's like, okay, I did my job today. There you go. Makes yeah. a big difference. I like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. FK Day, thank you so much. Thanks for. If there's anything you else, you and Katie, you're here with Katie, who helps you run the place, run World Bicycle Relief. If there's if there's anything else we need to say to the listener, any kind of help that y'all need, anything specific, obviously go to the website or if there's some sort of fundraiser in the area. But WorldBicycleRelief.org, great site. Everything's on here. You've got from from the early days all the way to the leadership team to the bike to the places you guys work awesome right here what it says it's the year of the i didn't even realize it. it says at the top it's the year of the bicycle sign the pledge that would be a good place for people to start <laughs> there there you go i didn't even know it was the year of the bicycle who's matching that 
Katie's talking across the room, which I'm glad you're talking. <laughs> okay, so for the month of July, every dollar raised up to two hundred fifty thousand. Up to two hundred fifty. Come on now, people, let's do this. Up to two hundred, up to a quarter million. A group of generous supporters are going to match. Right. Funding bicycles for students Perfect. How cool is that? That's super cool. I'm glad. Yeah. But they okay. So just go to the site, and that's and and the, the. I mean, once you sign the pledge, which I'm going to sign as soon as we hang up here. Top right is a big red tab says donate. I'm going to do that too. Cool. So if, if my broke ass can do it, then everybody listening can do it too. <laughs> hey, can I thank some of the uh, supporters out there? You can do whatever you want. This so, is your time. Well, I, uh, I, I'm, I'm guessing a, a bunch of your listeners are, um, your loyal listeners are also supporters of World Bicycle Relief, and I'd like to thank them for their incredible support and uh, and let them know the impact it makes uh, would blow them away awesome. i hope they get a chance to see it i also like to thank the bicycle industry yep. for being such a great supporter of, uh, of what we do i'm glad we're designing stuff for the top end of the market uh, but i think the most powerful bike i've seen is a bike in the hands of a schoolgirl fighting for her education thank amen. you lance yep appreciate it amen thanks fk Thanks for tuning in to the Forward Podcast. Like, uh, like I said at the top of the show, if you have anything you want to say, if you have a suggestion, please, God knows I need suggestions, um, or questions, or concerns, or criticisms, or whatever, let me know. Send me an email. Send it to theforwardpodcast at wedosport.com. I know it's long. I know it's a little confusing. The forward podcast at we do w-e-d-u sport singular dot com the forward podcast at we do sport dot com 